Today, we begin our study of the Megillas Esther, the book of Esther. Perhaps the most famous and well-known of all of the stories of Tanakh, since this is a story which many of us heard back in our preschool years. And this creates a bit of a problem because it's ingrained in us that this is a story, a dramatic story with a happy ending, etc. And often we read the story and reread the story no less than twice each Purim day uh, as a repetition of what we already know. Uh, and we do not read it in a in an adult, and certainly not in a sophisticated manner. And yet, the book of Esther lends itself to very profound analysis. Chazal tell us that just as one can darshan, that is, apply the techniques of drash to the Chumash itself, so too we can apply these techniques of drash to Megillas Esther. It has a very, very special place. The fact that it has a special place is underscored by the fact that Chazal say and the Rambam rules that in the ultimate future uh, we will not be studying any of Tanakh, any of Nach, except for the Chamisha Chum Torah. Yehoshua, in order to know the, the true boundaries of the land of Israel, and the book of Esther. This will never become Botel. So obviously it has great importance, and indeed it has been interpreted by Meforshim of, throughout the ages in various ways. There are those who approach it as a literary masterpiece, there are those who approach it as a uh, political intrigue, and there are those who approach it as a, um, a story which veils, V-E-I-L-S, a deeper Kabbalistic mystical meaning. So there are many ways to read the story. I will try to focus on an understanding of Megillas Esther which is derived from Chazal, and try to read it the way Chazal read it. And my presentation this time around in uh, the series of Nach Yomi uh, will draw from, especially from two sources which I want to mention uh, straight out at the beginning. One is a perush on the Gilas Esther called Manos Halevi, or Medrash Megillas Esther, which was written by Rabbi Shlomo Alkavetz Halevi. Rabbi Shlomo Alkavetz is perhaps best known, certainly best known, as the author of the poem Dodi, which we sing in every shul throughout the, the world every Friday night. He is most well known for that poem, but he was also a poet, somewhat of a mystic of the Tzfat, Tzfas school, 
um, but also wrote a very provocative and insightful, almost stunningly insightful commentary, uh, which I hope to share with you a bit uh, in these next uh, ten days. The other Meforesh is much more recent. His name is Rabbi Yehoshua Bachrach. He is a contemporary of ours. He writes extensively uh, on Tanakh, uh, various themes, and he put together a, uh, what should I say, a 20th century uh, commentary on Megillus Esther, which is called Kisavuni Ledoros, uh, an expression which means inscribe me or write me down for future generations, and it is taken from Hazal, from uh, a, a, a request addressed by Esther to the Anshek Neses Hagdola, that her story be written down for all time and eternity. So I will draw sometimes from Rav Bachrach and sometimes from Manos Halevi uh, and also, of course, from the standard Meforshim Rashi and from Hazal, especially from the Gemara in Meseches Megillah. Upon reflection, I realize that of all the books that we have been studying in Nevi'im and Kesuvim, uh, the only one toward which an entire tractate of the Talmud, an entire Mesechta of Talmud Bavli, is addressed, of Mishnayis, Talmud Yerushalmi as well, is Megillah, the Megillah's Esther. And there is indeed a tractate entitled Megillah. And in that Mesechta, there is so much uh, homiletic material on Megillah's Esther that it really is impossible to cover it all in this brief series, but I will try to draw from that inexhaustible well. So let us begin. The story begins with a man named Ahasuerus, who is a king, and Chazal debate, was he a Melech Pikeach, was he a very clever king, or was he a Melech Tipesh, was he somewhat of a foolish king? Indeed, he comes across sometimes as almost like a buffoon, and it's almost as if the Mechaber of the Megillah, the author of, of the Megillah's Esther, is making fun of, of this man. And Chazal look at him from both points of views. Epikeach on the one hand, very shrewd. On the other hand, the Tipesh, very foolish, trying to please everybody, and in the end, pleasing no one. So the story happened in the days of Achashverosh. And this Achashverosh Hamolech, for Chazal, he recently became king. He wasn't a Melech ben Melech. He wasn't of royal blood. He made himself king. Events worked out so that he was able to come out on top of, uh, as a king. But he was Kasam king. He was what Chazal's call a molech bekipo. He was a king over the entire world, or certainly the entire then known world. Mehodu viad kush, traditionally translated as from India until Ethiopia. Sheva ve'esrimu meyo medina. 127 provinces 
were all under his dominion. And it happened in those dates. As this king was sitting, which would seem to mean, Chazal interpreted this way, he just began to sit, he just began his reign uh, upon his throne, Al Kisei Malchuso. Chazal say, by the way, that this was no ordinary throne. It was nothing less than the throne of Shlomo HaMelech, a, magist, uh, a magical as well as majestic throne, which he was a- inherited from the booty, the loot of Nebuchadnezzar, who took all of the treasures of the Beis HaMikdosh and of Yerushalayim. And indeed, in many ways, there are interesting contrasts and connections between Shlomo as a king, who certainly was the Chacham Mikol Adam, certainly was a wise king, although he too was capable of doing some uh, foolish things, and Achashverosh, there are certain connections. And this Kisei Malchuso, this throne, which Chazal um, interpreted as being Shlomo's throne, nonetheless Shlomo Melech's own throne, uh, was what he sat upon. Uh, by the way, uh, I want to mention that there are other interesting sources of all the legends and Midrashim, besides the Gemara Meseches Megillah, Medrash Rabbah Megillah Esther, the Targum, there's two Targumim, many Targumim, but two that are well, well known about Megillah Esther. One is the ordinary Targum, and then the other is something called the Targum Sheni. I remember as a young boy being taught in school the legends and stories of the Targum Sheni, which elaborate on many of the themes that I can just touch upon, including the theme of this Kisei Malchuso being the magical throne of Shlomo HaMelech. So consult the Targum HaSheni for more about this magical throne. And it happened that early on in the reign of this king, Bishnas Shalosh Lomolcho, the third year of his reign, he decided to make a party. Also Mishta. And he made this party for the nobility. Lechol Sarova Avodov, for all of his uh, officials and servants. Cheil Porasu Modai. The administration of Persia and Medea. Hapartamim visore hamedinos lofonov. Hapartamim seems to be a word which means the noblemen, the governors of the provinces in his service. There are many words in the Megillah, which are not, in, in Megillah says there, which are not Hebrew, not Aramaic, but Persian words of some sort, Median words, and we don't know to this day exactly what they mean. Partamim is one of them. But obviously from the context it means some sort of a high official. Osher Kavod He did this to display. He gave this Mishta, this banquet, to display the wealth, the glory of his kingdom. The um, so the beauty, preciousness, 
of his greatness. Yomim Rabim Shimonim Umiyasyom. For no fewer than 180 days. So this was quite a party. And it was all done for one thing, and that's the first word of Pasuk Dalad. Bahar Oso. He wanted to show off. He thought that by showing off his wealth, his majesty, he could impress all of these officials, and he would therefore gain prestige in their eyes, and they would see him as an authentic and true king. So that was party number one. And it was a 180-day party. And the apostle continues. Uvimlos hayomim ho'ela. At the end of these 30 days, of these 180 days, at the end of this period, he gave a second party. Not as long as the first. The first was 180 days. And not for the nobility. But rather... He made a party for the masses. He made a party for the public. All the people who lived in Shushan, the, the fortress city called Shushan, high and low alike. And he made this party, Shivas Yomim, for seven days, not 180, but seven. Bachatsar Ginas Pisan Hamelech. And he made it in the court of the king's palace garden. Chatsar uh, is the court, Ginas is the garden, Bisan is a uh, palace, Hamelech of the king. So, Whereas of the first party, we do not know exactly where he made it. Uh, we know how long it was and whom he, his extensive guest list was. In the second party, we also know how long it is, was, seven days, not 180. But we know precisely where it took place, in the courtyard, where in the courtyard, in the garden of the palace of the courtyard, exactly there. And we know that the guest list was the entire populace of Shushan Hapiro, Shushan the capital city, or perhaps Shushan the fortress. Why did he do this? Hazal and Mepharshim take the following approach, and that is that the king was trying to cement the relationship between himself and the nobility and between himself and the people. He wanted it all. He wanted all the benefits of a democratic ruler, the people like him, he's popular, and all of the benefits of an um, aristocratic leader, all the aristocracy should look up to him. And he tried to get it by showing off. And he knew that when you give people to eat and to drink, you bring them closer to you. That's a way of winning the favor of other people. Chazal in the Gemara Maseches Sanhedrin, Daf Kuf Gimel, says something very insightful, which um, obviously Achashverosh was not aware of. And that is, Gedola Legima, that the power of sitting and eating and drinking with another person is great. Sit down with a person, have a coffee with him, certainly have... <coughs> 
<coughs> a stronger drink with him, you do accomplish something in the relationship. What do you accomplish? Listen to Chazal. Sometimes when you sit down to eat with someone who's very close to you, in the process, you distance yourself from that person. But when you sit down to eat or drink with someone who's distant from you, you bring that person close. Legima, sitting and enjoying a drink together, has a paradoxical effect. It distances those who are close and brings close those who are distant. What Achashverosh was trying to do was to bring closer to him those who were distant. He didn't realize that sometimes the drinking together and feasting together has the opposite effect. What was involved in this second party? The first party we don't know. In the second party we know in detail. Chur, Pasuk Vov now, Chur, Karpas, Susechelas. Here we have a description of all the hangings of white cotton and blue wool, which were intertwined with cords of fine linen and purple wool, and intertwined around them, around silver rods and alabaster columns, Couches of gold and silver on a pavement of marble and mother of pearl and mosaics. So you have this this unbelievable wealth and glory and, and opulence described here. You don't have that described in the first party. But the second party, every every sensual beauty is is there. The beauty of silver and gold and, and scarlet and linens, etc., etc. It's all there. That's the background. What was the menu? The menu was drink. But it was not only drink. Not only was royal wine served, and it served in abundance, but it was served in golden beakers, in beakers of a variety of designs. Royal wine, rov, much of it, kiyad hamelech, consistent with the the generosity of a king, kiyad hamelech, as befits a king. And as far as the rules, what was the rules? Ein ones, no restrictions. Anything goes. Drink as much as you want. The king had given orders to all of his uh, stewards to comply with each man's wishes. What a mishteh. What a banquet this was. Plenty of drink. Plenty of legima, in the words of Chazal. Plenty of drink, trying to win over the people and to make them popular with him.
Notice, of course, that Ahasuerus was trying to win everyone over. He was trying to do something kirtzon ish ish, trying to please everyone. The Medrash in Esther Rabbah says as follows, La'asos kirtzon ish ish, you want to please everyone? Omalo HaKadosh Baruch God said, Kaviyochel, to Ahasuerus, Ani, eni yotzei midei briosai, I, God, can't please everyone. And you want to praise everyone. And the Medrash continues. Suppose you have two men, they both want to marry the same woman. Can one woman marry two men? It's got to be one or the other. You can't please them both. Again, says the Medrash. If you have two uh, ships that are both trying to enter into the same port, for one to get into the port, it needs a southerly wind. And for the other to get into the port, it needs a northerly wind. Can one wind push both boats? One wants to go north, one wants to go south. There's only one wind. You can't have a wind blowing both north and south. You can't please everyone, says the Midrash. Ela olazo, olazo. It's got to be either this one or that one. Someone's got to win, someone's got to lose. The Midrash says, Tomorrow, Mr. Achashverosh, Mr. King who wants to please everybody, you're going to have two people come before you. You're going to have to make a choice. You can't please everyone. You're going to have one ish, ish Yehudi, the Jewish ish, Mordechai. And you're going to have another ish, ish Tsarva Oyev, the hateful enemy, Haman. You're going to have an ish for ish. You're going to please them both. Putting it in the words, the words in the mouth of God, speaking to Agashverosh. You're going to please both ish, is. The Ish and the Ish, Ish Yehudi and the Ish Tsarva Oyev. You're going to have to elevate one and hang the other. You can't please everyone. Very important lesson, certainly, for us all. But as all these parties are going on, the 180-day party, and then the uh, seven-day party, by the way, in Chazal there's a machlokas. Was the seven days part of the 180? Were they days 173 till 180? Or were these seven days after the 180? So there's a total of 187 days of party. Be that as it may, it was a long two parties. But there was another party going on. Gam vashti hamalka osesosh mishte noshim. Beis Hamalchus Asher Lamelech Achashverosh, Queen Vashti, to whom we are introduced now for the first time, Achashverosh's queen, gave a banquet for women, separate seating, separate banquets, and she gave it in the royal palace of Achashverosh. Chazal, most Mephorshim follow Chazal, 
see in Vashti a very special person. Vashti was a descendant of royalty, a granddaughter of Nebuchadnezzar. So Vashti was an authentic queen. She really represented royalty. Achashverosh, he was this Johnny-come-lately, this upstart. Bayom HaShvi'i, and it happened on the seventh day, the last day of the party. Ketov Lev HaMelech Bayoyen, as the king was merry with wine. Omar, he called in his special advisors. Actually, he called in seven eunuchs, E-U-N-U-C-H-S, seven sorisim. And their names are Muhumon, Bizizo, Harvono, Bigso, Vavakso, Zesar, and Charkas. These seven eunuchs, Hamishorsim es Pnehamelech who attended upon King Achashverosh. And he asked them to enter into the quarters of Vashti and to enter the harem, as it were. That's why they were eunuchs, so that he could trust them to enter the uh, women's uh, festivities. And he asked them, Lohovi es vashti ha-malko lefnei ha-melech, becheser malchus, laharos ha-amim v'hasorim es yofyo, ki tovas mar-ehi. He wanted them to bring her bedecked in the uh, royal diadem, the royal crown, to display her beauty, to show off her beauty, for she was a beautiful woman. Chazal say that he wanted to display her naked, arumo. He really wanted to embarrass her. And Chazal see it as his attempt to bring her down a peg. She was the real princess, the real queen, real royalty, and he wanted to show that he had power over her. He could degrade her. And again, his motive, same as before, laharos, to show off, to display. This is constantly his motive. Vashti, however, who is described as a tovas mare, a rare description indeed uh, in, Chaza, in the Tanakh, very few women are called Tovas Mare, and she refused. She refused to listen to this uh, summons which was brought to her by these Sorisim, by these eunuchs. The king was very angry. And his wrath burned within him. So we have a clear picture now of a king who was drunk, and not only drunk, but drunk, foolishly drunk, and um, angry as well. A king in the worst possible uh, stage, state. And she is, and uh, over and against him is Vashti Hamalko, the queen who still has pride and perhaps even still has modesty and will not allow herself to be degraded and stands up to the uh, king. There is a beautiful thought presented by Rabbi Shemshin Rafal Hirsch. Now he, to my knowledge, wrote no commentary 
on the book of Esther. But of course he did write a commentary upon the Chumash. And in Parshas Chayisoro, it's Bereshis Chof Dalet Posuk Tesayin. Rav Shemshem Rafal Hirsch picks up on the word describing Vashti as Tovas Mare. And who else is described as Tovas Mare? Rivka. Rivka, our uh, matriarch, our great, 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 great grandmother, is described as Tovas Mare and as Yifas Mare. Rav Hirsch writes, and I'm right, quoting him in the Hebrew translation before me. Efshar she'enom hainuhach. Tovas mare, yefas mare, good of appearance and beautiful of appearance don't mean the same thing. Tovas mare, good of appearance, more al hayofi haruchoni vahamusori hamishtakeh bekwaster haponet. There is a spiritual beauty, a moral beauty, which is reflected in a person's face. Sometimes a person's persona, a person's face, expresses beauty, but it's a spiritual beauty. That's Tovas Mare, suggests Rabbi Hirsch. It's the chen that we often discuss. Against that, over and against that, there's another type of beauty. That's Yefas Mare or Yefei Mare. That's what Hirsch calls, Rav Hirsch calls, Hayofi Hachitsoni, external beauty. Rav Hirsch goes on to say that he would like to defend this distinction between Tovas Mare and Yefas Mare. So that a woman who is described as both has both spiritual beauty and just plain old fashioned physical beauty. But, says Rav Hirsch, I've got a problem. I would want to defend with certainty this suggestion, the difference between Tovas Mare and Yefas Mare. But, says Rav Hirsch, all the way back in Chumash Bereshis, Pashas Chayisora, he says, but there's a posuk in the Gilis Esther, which we in this audience today are studying, which describes of all people Vashti, not Rivka, not Rochel, not Leah, as being a Tovas Mare. Are we to say that Vashti had this spiritual beauty? You know what, says um, Rav Hirsch? Maybe. Who says Vashti was a wicked woman? Who says maybe Vashti was a somewhat of a tzadekis? Maybe she was a very spiritual and moral person. In the words of Rav Hirsch, Maybe Vashti too was a woman with chen, charm, and uh, a moral superiority, not physical beauty. After all, she refuses to let herself to be displayed. So she has both a certain morality and a lot of courage. Perhaps that's why she can be called indeed the Tovas Mare. Vayomer HaMelech, the king, angry as he is, says to the Chachomim Yodei Ho'itim. He calls upon those wise men who 
Yodeho Itim literally means who know the times. Who know the times. People who, 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 who know the procedures. This was the king's custom to always turn to those who were versed in law and precedent. This king does not do things on his own. He does not make his own choices. He always consults others. We will see this again and again. Interestingly enough, and Ghazal and the Medrash point this out. When it comes to this doing what he wants to do to this queen, then he calls upon his advisors. But when Haman suggests that he wipe out an entire people, then he doesn't call in his advisors. He just does what he don't pleases. And Ghazal say it's a beautiful term. Omar Kados. For this female pig, the negative way of looking at Vashti, for this piggish woman, a little different, of course, from Rav Hirsch's uh, suggestion about Vashti. Rav Yitzchak says, "Lechazirto kados." For this pig, he 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 goes and consults and wants to follow the rule books. Ulu umo kadosha shelo kados. But for our entire holy nation, then he doesn't go into consultation. He doesn't uh, convene the entire legislature. Then he does it very cruelly. The closest advisors, and here you have a list of the closest advisors and their names. Karshano, Shesor, Admoso, Sharshish, Meres, Marsno, Memuchon, a whole list of seven Shivasore Porasumodai, seven princes of Persia and Medea. Roei Pnei HaMelech, who had the privilege of seeing the king, Hayoshvim Rishono Bamalchus, they had first place in the kingdom, royal committee. Kedos Malasos, he wanted to know what to do, how do we legally respond? Bamalko Vashti to the queen Vashti. Alasherlo Osesos Mamar HaMelech HaChashverosh Biyad HaSorisim, who did not do what the king wished her to do. Vayomem Memuchon Lefnei HaMelech Memuchon, one of the seven, said to the king and to the other ministers, Vahasorim, Who was this Memuchon? Chazal say, that was Haman. And he was called, Chazal the Gemara Meseches, Megillah Daf Yud Beis. He was called Memuchan because he was Muchan Lepuronios. He was destined for catastrophe. And this Memuchan, he um, had a, a, a scheme. And he said, you think this queen was just defying you? He wanted to magnify the queen's defiance and make it worse than it was. So he said, Lo this queen, Vashti, did not just defy the king. But rather, she sinned also against all the officials and against all the people and all the provinces of the king. Why? Because this queen's behavior, what she did, will now become a model for all the people, all the women. 
All the people will say, um, all the women will say, that, um, look, the Queen Vashti ordered, was ordered to be brought before him, and she would not come. And this will be quoted by every woman when she wants to defy her husband for good cause or for no cause, she will say, well, Queen Vashti didn't have to listen to Achashverosh, why do I have to listen to you, Mr. Husband? And so, there will be great scorn, great bizayon v'ketzev. Hayom ha'zeh, tomar no soros porasu modai asher shamu est parhamal kolochoyol sorei ha'melech uchadai bizayon v'ketzev. The um, the wives who will have heard of the queen's behavior will quote it and there will be no end to the scorn and provocation. What was the real motive of Memuchan, or as Chazal say, Homon, in giving this advice to, uh, to Ahasuerus? What did he have against Vashti? After all, all right, his advice could be, king, forget it. What was his real motive? Hazal and the Medrash speculate and offer three possibilities. Medrash Estrabo, There were three Amoroim who argued what was the motive of Mamuchan. It's interesting that our great Amoroim busied themselves with trying to discover and analyze the motives of this provincial governor, this nobody, this person who, if indeed he was someone, turned out to be a Rosha. They wanted to know what makes him tick. That she would slap him. She would take off her slipper and slap him. Therefore, he wanted to take revenge. And this is what he means ultimately when he says, It's not just the king that she's embarrassing. She embarrasses me every day. She slaps me. She insults me with her minol, with her sandal. The Chadomar, another Amor says, Al Shelo his mino es ishto de sudas hanoshe. Haman was upset because Vashti didn't invite his wife to her party. And that was enough to set him off and to have him try to kill her. It says, and this is hinted at when the Pesach says, Ki eitzei dval mahamalko al kol hanoshim lahavzos pa'alehen. Not all the women were invited to the party. My wife wasn't. And I'm going to get even with this Vashti. The third Amora says, V'chad Omar, Shehoi Solovas, Memuchan, or Haman, had a daughter, and he wanted her to be the king. And that's why he says, ultimately, Give the queen's throne to another woman, namely to my daughter. Let's continue. And this is the uh, suggestion of Memucha. Um, 
That was Posuk Yutes, Posuk 19. If it please your majesty, let a royal edict be issued by you, and let it be written into the laws of Persia and Media, so that it cannot be abrogated, that Vashti shall never enter the pres- presence of Ahasuerus. And let the, your majesty bestow her royal state upon another who is more worthy than she. Depose her. Take away her queenship. Then will the judgment executed by your majesty resound throughout your realm as great as your realm is, and all wives will treat all husbands with respect, nobility, and ordinary people alike. Very, very interesting suggestion. But notice, never does Memuchan suggest that Vashti be killed. And never do we find openly, explicitly in the Megillah that she was executed, she was deposed, but we find that she was killed. Chazal say yes. She not only was killed, but she was guillotined. But we don't find that in the Pesach. In the Pesach, she was simply deposed. Perhaps Achashverosh was reluctant to to start up, to offend this royal, royal princess who obviously still had plenty of connections. But he was willing to go as far as to depose her. The Melech and all the officials, all the ministers, they liked this idea. The king did just that. He deposed her or, as Chazal have it, he killed her. And the king sent out uh, books, uh, decrees, so to speak, to all the provinces of the king, to every province in its own writing and to every nation in its own language. And the decree was, that every man should wield authority, should be the boss in his own home. And speak in the language of his people. It was important to Achashverosh that every man be the boss in his own home and that every man be independent and nationalistic enough to be able to speak in his own language. And Chazal say, a very interesting thing in the Gomorrah, that when people got these letters they wondered, what kind of a silly letter is this? What kind of a letter is this king sending? My high de Shodalon. What is these letters, these weird letters that we're getting from the king? Lihiyos kol ish so That every man should be the boss in his own home. Pshita, that's obvious, of course. Afilu korcho bevesei pardashcho lehevi. Even some blind old, some bald old drunkard uh, is the boss in his own home. That statement 
follows the following statement of Rova. Rova says, Mar Megillah If not for these first silly letters about everybody being the boss in his own home, the Jewish people wouldn't have had one survivor. What does this mean? So the Torah Tamimo, Boruch HaLevi Epstein, who has a bit of a commentary on the Gilles Esther, which I recommend to you, understands this Gemara as follows. Quote, Pirush, Ilmole Igros Horishonos, if not for these first letters that Achashverosh sent to everybody, saying, I want every man to be the boss in his own home, these silly letters coming from a king. Which made people think this king is a nutcase. This king is a fool. Look at the letters you get from a king. Can you imagine getting a letter from President Obama saying, hey, I want you to be the boss in your own home? What kind of nonsense is that? But obviously, you get such a letter, you realize this king is a shota, this king is a fool. And that was very important, that people should not take the king's letters seriously, writes the author of the Torah to Mimo. If Because if they would have taken it seriously, as soon as they got a next set of letters, which we'll learn about later, they would have definitely, immediately killed the Jews. Because they would see a letter from the king saying, kill the Jews, they would have gone out the next morning or that very moment and killed the Jews. In the second set of letters, which instruct people to kill Jews, they would have taken it seriously and gone to kill Jews in a moment's notice. They wouldn't have waited for the deadline. But they realized this king's letters which say, kill all the Jews by a certain date. These letters don't mean a darn thing. Because this is the king who's sending all kinds of stupid letters around. He's sending letters about being the boss of your own home. They realize this king can change his mind at a moment's notice. So we better not kill anybody, even Jews, on the basis of this letter, because this king is a shota, and he can change his mind tomorrow. So this background story, which at this so far hasn't even mentioned the Jews, doesn't even seem to be a story that's relevant to us. It's a story about a king and a queen and a muchan. And what does it have to do with us? But it has a lot to do with us. And one thing is that it sets the stage for a king who sends out written decrees on whim, on whims, on, on, on just just for no reason at all, just arbitrarily, just for silly reasons. And therefore, as we will read about another set of letters that he comes, that he sends out, much more dastardly, much more anti-Semitically, much more murderously, the letters are have to be viewed from the perspective of this first set of letters as the letters of a joker of a king, of a clown, of a buffoon. And so we come to the very end of the first parak of Megillah's Esther, which we're studying today. In Yitz Hashem, we will continue and study Perak Bays, Perak number two, tomorrow. All right, Dan, this ends Megillah's Esther, chapter one.